This evening for our scripture reading, we turn to Acts, Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. In this chapter, Paul, a prisoner, is before King Agrippa to give an account of himself, Agrippa supposedly being his judge, and Paul is going to give an account of his ministry, give a testimony of his own repentance, because that's what our interest is in this. And you will also see the hard-heartedness of King Agrippa. Let's read. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews, wherefore I beseech thee to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews." which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion I lived, a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews." Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them, and I punished them oft in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me, and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise, and stand upon thy feet. For I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes, and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins." and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. 
Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead, and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, Thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. And when he had thus spoken, the king rose up, and the governor, and Bernice, and they that sat with him, and when they were gone aside, they talked between themselves, saying, This man doeth nothing worthy of death or of bonds. Then said Agrippa unto Festus, This man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. We read that far, and tonight we consider verses 19 and 20 of this chapter. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we prepare for the Lord's Day, I suppose it would seem obvious that we would consider a text out of Scripture regarding repentance because it's part of self-examination. But there are three closely related reasons to why I am taking this opportunity to preach to you on this text and the subject of true Reformed repentance. The first has to do with the fact that at this time of year, as the nights get colder and the leaves start to change, we think often of the Reformation. We think of that time way back in the 1500s when Martin Luther in the year 1517 nailed his 95 thesis to the wall of a church. And if you ask, well, what does that have to do with the subject here tonight, then it belies the fact that we often forget that the Reformation was about repentance. We often can characterize the Reformation various ways, but we forget that it was really about repentance. It began, at least, over repentance. Uh, 
And you can verify that by checking out the first three of Martin Luther's 95 Thesis, and you'll discover the first three are all about repentance. In his first, he said that repentance should characterize the entire life of the child of God. In other words, he was aiming at the view of the Roman Catholics about repentance that had to do with it being an occasional thing, dealing with the priest. And then he spoke about the fact that repentance isn't simply uh, something that one does. It's a matter of the heart. But neither is it something exclusively of the heart, but it's something that involves the changing of the whole life. And he did that, of course, against the view of the Roman Catholics about what repentance was. And it's worth us remembering or at least considering what they said repentance consisted of. First of all, they said that repentance consists of a sincere sorrow of heart over sin. It's within the sinner thus far so good. They called that contrition, contrition. And then came the next thing, confession. But confession was something made in the ears of the priest. They called it auricular or in the ear of the priest. That was the important part. There was no real repentance without confession to the priest. And then after that, there was satisfaction. The priest, based on your sin and his own whim often, would give some sort of satisfaction, some deed that the sinner was to perform. And then, after he had done that, there would be uh, the pronouncement of the priest, what's called absolution. The priest would then absolve the sinner of his sin. That was what repentance was. And if you remember that Martin Luther was responding to the issue of indulgences, if you want to know how that fits in, remember that indulgences had to do with satisfaction, that third point. Instead of performing some deed that would cover your sin, that it was uh, meant to lead to absolution of one's sin, uh, a person could just pay money and then receive that absolution uh, via a piece of paper. So it's good for us to consider before the Lord's table that we are freed from that bondage and even the evil works that were involved with that view of repentance. Then there is also this, that in the church which administers the table of the Lord, the supper of the Lord every four times a year at least, and wherein we all know that it involves self-examination and therefore repentance, it nevertheless happens that members of the church come to the table without repenting. They partake of the Lord's table, and perhaps they even say to themselves that this is okay, this is good, I'm receiving God's grace, and then we need to be reminded of the truth also taught in this section of Scripture and elsewhere and in the creeds, that there is no forgiveness without repentance. If you come to the table of the Lord without repentance, you will not hear the forgiveness of God. You won't see it. You won't receive it. And we are warned even in the form that such 
eat not the grace of God. They go away not blessed, but they go away eating and drinking the judgment of God, which judgment usually is that God gives such a sinner over to sin so that they go deeper and deeper and deeper into that sin with one of two consequences. A one, if they are not an elect child of God, it will lead to hell itself. Often to excommunication than hell itself. Usually because one goes deeper and deeper to that sin, they get caught. It becomes public. It becomes noticed that the church must discipline. That also can happen with the child of God, and then God recovers that child. But understand that's generally the way God recovers them. Their sin becomes known. It becomes public. Either through discipline or it's just simply found out. And if you ask yourself why that happens, one reason is that that individual lived their life in the church with a wrong view of repentance. Didn't consider repentance necessary. Had a wrong view of God's salvation and grace. And so they came to the table without repentance. And they were eating judgment to themselves. We need to remember that this sermon is meant to bring that to your mind. Then there's another view, especially that has come to light by those who have left us recently, which would consider what I just said and what I just mentioned to you as setting forth conditions that if you say that repentance precedes forgiveness, then you're making that a prerequisite, something that's necessary and comes before, which is a condition, they say. Repentance, in their view, is a good work. Repentance, in their view, therefore, is a good work that if you require before forgiveness, then makes repentance justification by works and makes salvation by works, forgiveness by works. Indeed, a terrible and wicked doctrine, if that were true. But that's not what we teach. But at the same time, make no mistake of what our creeds and Scripture teaches, what I will teach you tonight about true, reformed repentance. And I'm going to begin simply by connecting that to the Lord's Supper and making it absolutely plain. It is amazing that whenever there's a dispute in the church over doctrine, how often it relates to the creeds. And even in the doctrinal controversy that moved many to leave and create schism, it relates to the sacraments. That's what I meant. Doctrinal controversy often involves the sacraments. That happened in 1953. That was about the sacrament of baptism. Our creeds teach that the Lord's Supper is instituted for one person and one person only. It is instituted for those who are truly sorrowful for their sins and yet trust 
they are forgiven for the sake of Christ. That's question and answer 81 of the Heidelberg Catechism. We read in our form that we must consider our sins and the curse due to them to the end that we may abhor and humble ourselves before God and believe the promise that they are forgiven only for the sake of the passion and death of Jesus Christ. That's our form. Both of those statements refer to repentance. And there's teaching that the Lord's Supper is not for those who refuse to repent, but it is only for those who do repent. And with that in mind, let's consider true Reformed repentance, what it is, the necessity, and then the evidence. First, what it is. As I said, the Reformation began over the issue of repentance, and it did so because always in the history of the gospel, doctrine concerns the gospel, and it concerns the sacraments. What the Roman Catholic Church was teaching about repentance not only compromised the gospel, taught a different gospel, and led into all sorts of practical and ungodly errors, but it concerned the sacrament, what they called mass. The basic reason for that is because repentance is absolutely essential and an essential part of the Holy Gospel. That's the first thing we have to see, and that's evident from the passage we read, where Paul, who is a prisoner, prisoner of Rome, gives an account of his ministry. And he summarizes his ministry as preaching, and preaching as showing certain truths, he says. And then if you look at Paul's summary now of his ministry, he summarizes it simply in word and word as preaching repentance. He said he went everywhere, throughout all the coasts of Canaan, to Damascus and Jerusalem and all Judea, to the Gentiles Gentiles even, preaching what? That they should repent. Notice that's what he preached. He didn't simply preach that there was repentance. He didn't simply preach that there was repentance available. He didn't even preach that there was forgiveness without repentance or forgiveness as such. But he went everywhere preaching repentance. That they should, they must, it's necessary to repent and turn to God. And then even when he gets to the issue of sanctification, good works, he says that they should do works meet that is appropriate in harmony with repentance. He even connects that to repentance. It's obvious then that this is central to the gospel. And this is why this has been the message of every gospel preacher that has ever lived. Any true and real gospel preacher preaches repentance. And by that I mean preaches that the audience should turn from their sin and repent. I will prove that to you. In Mark chapter 1 verse 4 we read that John the Baptist preached the baptism of repentance for 
the remission of sins. Notice the order there. We'll get to that in a bit. But notice what he preached. His preaching is summarized as preaching repentance. Oh, baby, he's an outlier. But no, we read a few verses later in the same book, Mark 1, that Jesus came preaching, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Repent and believe. And that's not an isolated reference to the ministry of Jesus either. Jesus himself commissioned the disciples to go forth and told them to preach repentance and the remission of sins in his name. Preach repentance and the remission of sins in his name, Luke 24, verse 47. And Paul not only makes that clear that this was his mission in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 26, but in Acts 20, we read that he tells the Ephesians elders that he did not cease to preach repentance toward God. That's Acts 20, verse 21. That's quite a different view from how many view the central, essential aspect of the gospel. There are many who say simply that the gospel is to preach that Jesus suffered and died, even that Jesus suffered and died for sins. But there's no preaching that the audience should repent. There are those who think the main aspect of the gospel that ought to be preached, that perhaps Paul even erred here when he summarizes his preaching as simply preaching election or perhaps reprobation, predestination. That the main aspect of the preaching is that we must love God and our neighbor. All important, all an aspect of the gospel, but central to them all. And we may even say, even without it, one cannot even understand the others, is repentance. Which is why it is so amazing that so frequently, this is not an outlier text, so often the gospel is simply summarized, even the call of the gospel, as repent. Not even repent and believe, but simply repent. Paul highlights the importance and necessity of this message and the great evil of denying it. Those who would even under the name of grace, even those who have left us, that want to make the message there's forgiveness without repentance and have preached that repentance is law righteousness. They have preached that. That if you preach, you should repent. That's law righteousness. And repentance is a good work. Ought to listen to Paul here, who said that this was what Christ told him to do. Notice he prefaces this whole section as the summary of what Christ commissioned him to do. That Christ came 
And Christ converted him. Christ came in bright light and spoke to him from heaven, rebuked him for his sin, even his great sin of persecuting the church, and consenting and delivering over to death many Christians. And Jesus says, I've called you. I've called you to the ministry. What did Christ call him to do? To preach that they may receive the forgiveness of sins. How? By the opening of their eyes. And how does Paul summarize that? As preaching repentance. And doing works meet for repentance. And he makes clear to Agrippa, I was not disobedient to that command. And I could not be disobedient. It's what my Lord called me to do. So, what is the true Reformed view of repentance? And you will discover, if you look carefully, that repentance consists of a number of elements. That repentance is summarized as a number of elements. should be aware that sometimes you will discover that theologians and even creeds sometimes look at repentance more broadly, but Repentance, generally and in Scripture, has these elements. First of all, and mainly, repentance is always godly sorrow over our sin. That is taught in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10, where it says, Godly sorrow worketh repentance, and then contrasts that with the sorrow of the world, which only worketh death. Now the idea of that passage is that godly sorrow worketh repentance because it is repentance. Those two are virtually synonymous. To repent is to have godly sorrow. In other words, it's the most basic element and definition even of repentance. That's what question and answer 81 is referring to when it says the Lord's Supper is instituted for those who are truly repentant or truly sorrowful for their sins. What it's saying there is the Lord's Supper is for those who are truly repentant. That's what question and answer 89 is referring to when it defines mortification of the old man as a sincere sorrow of heart. Sincere sorrow of heart stands for repentance. And if you want a proof of that, that I'm not just making up, then you can go to the Canons, Head 5, Article 7, And it says that God by His Word and Spirit certainly and effectually renews them to repentance and then adds immediately after that to a sincere and godly sorrow for sins. Now you understand in the canons that's not two different things. There's repentance and then there's a sincere and godly sorrow for sins. But our fathers are saying there in Canons 5-7 that when God works repentance, it is a sincere and godly sorrow for sins. For sin. So that's what repentance is in the first place. And 1 Corinthians 7 verse 10 contrasts it with the sorrow of the world. So we should look at that contrast. Sorrow for sin, godly sorrow for sin, is different than the sorrow of the world. How so? Well, sorrow for sin is a sorrow because our sins have provoked and offended God. It's sorrow over sin as sin. 
as sin that has offended the majesty and the glory of God. Whereas the sorrow of the world, and there is such a thing, real tears, real remorse, is always over only the consequences of sin. It's sorrow over getting caught. It's sorrow over being embarrassed by sin. That's not repentance. It's sorrow that hates the sin, as the Lord's Day makes clear when it talks about the mortification. It hates the sin as sin, whereas the sorrow of the world, ungodly sorrow, sorrow that is not repentance, always still loves the sin. And it's always manifest by a desire not to turn from it. It doesn't despise it. doesn't have any intention, really, of turning from it. So there may be many, even in self-examination, that say, oh yes, I'm a sinner. Oh yes, I have sin. And I'm even sorry for my sin. I, 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 I kind of wished it wasn't there, and it creates me some problems here and there. It may even cost my job or a position in the church. But it's not godly sorrow, because it doesn't hate the sin. doesn't turn from it is fine and comfortable with it, doesn't mind living with it, even seeks it out in many cases. You might add here that this makes clear that repentance is not some work that merits forgiveness, or is it some satisfaction for sin? Simply look at what repentance is in its essence, a sorrow, a godly sorrow for sin. Now that's what we're charged with teaching. That charge, I hope you see, doesn't fall on the PRC or its pastors and professors, but it's a charge that falls on the Reformed faith. It falls on Martin Luther. It falls on John Calvin. It falls on the Canons of Dort. It falls on the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession. All teach what I'm teaching here But it's also nonsense, even if you look at it, that when we insist that repentance is necessary and precedes and even leads to forgiveness, that cannot be. It's not a work. It's sorrow. And what is it sorrow about? It's sorrow that I'm a sinner. And it's a sorrow that my sins have provoked God. And certainly included in that is it's a sorrow that I cannot satisfy for my sins. It's a sorrow that looks at one's own sins and even everything that one one does as sinful and therefore unable, unworthy to atone and satisfy for sins. Number two, true Reformed repentance is an honest confession of one's sin to God. To God. Now by that I don't mean that it's not ever confessed to individuals that we sin against. But in the first place, it is always confession to God. In fact, if one confesses to the individual but not to God, that's not repentance either. This is proven in First John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins. The apostle puts it that way. He could have said, If we sorrow over our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins. But here he puts it in terms of confessing our sins because it's an element of repentance. That this is true is also made plain if you would look in the form for baptism, but not the place that we normally work, which is the baptism of infants, but rather 
the baptism of adults. I bring that up because we have been charged with teaching a conditional view of baptism too. But in the same form, where we're commanded to baptize infants and explains why, you read this about the baptism of adults, that it's not lawful. You may not baptize an adult, which is, don't forget, the sign of forgiveness. You may not do that unless an individual is first sensible of their sins and makes confession of repentance and faith in Christ. And then it cites as proof what I quoted to you that the ministry of John the Baptist was that he baptized only those who confessed their sins. That's in our baptism form. He didn't baptize everybody. He didn't even baptize everybody that was crying over their sins, but only those who confessed their sins. Such confession should be specific. Those sins that we can identify. We confess to God our sin of drunkenness, our sin of anger against a specific brother, our sin of fornication, our sin of this and our sin of that. We confess those sins that are especially prominent and powerful in our life, those against which we must battle every single day. But by specific, I don't mean just that. I bring that up because often we fall into we fall into the habit of simply saying lord confess our sins and there's nothing in our mind there that we're really confessing just sins we add it sort of as a requirement sort of something to go through what sins what sins what sins are we confessing to god But at the same time, we need to recognize that you and I can't possibly confess all our sins. We can't possibly do that. There are sins that you and I really don't even know. We don't even see as we ought. God must bring them to light. God must show them to us. God must rebuke them. Sometimes God must rebuke them. That's God's work. But we must also confess that we are sinners, not simply, well, I confess my sin, and then there's a period in between my sins where I'm actually quite a good person who doesn't sin, but we must recognize and even confess that we're sinning all the time and in everything that we do. That's part of what Martin Luther meant when he said our whole life should be characterized by repentance. There never is a time when we can stand before God and say, I'm sin-free, or I sin very little, or only now and then, true repentance is confession to God of our sin in every aspect and in every way that we can think of. And it's made to God, not man. That over against what Rome was promoting, that it must be to the priest. There was no such thing really as true confession, that is true repentance, unless it was done to the priest. With no offense to God, that they were teaching that God would not forgive their sins unless it was actually given to the priest, and not to God. Think of how offended you would be if I would sin against you, and then instead of confessing to you, I'd go confess to my neighbor. You'd say, hey, wait a minute, 
You're confessing your sin to everybody but me. That ought to be, con- that ought to be also offensive to consistories. When men appear to confess their sins, and they confess them to the consistory, but the sin that they committed against the brother, for which they're under discipline, or the sister, perhaps at their wife, and the consistory listens and receives that confession, and the old confession was ever made to the person they sinned against. That's offensive. That would be offensive to elders. But equally offensive if the individual stands before them and simply says, I sinned against the church, and I sinned this way and that way. But it's clear they never confessed to God. Confess to God against whom we sinned. Thirdly, a true repentance is always accompanied by a turning to God. It's not simply a turning from sin in the heart so that one is sorrowful for sin, that one mourns over their sin. It's not simply a confession that I'm a sinner, but it's always a turning to God in true faith that He will forgive those sins. That's part of it. In other words, there really is no true repentance unless one is at the same time turning to God as the one who forgives those very sins. That's why the Apostle adds that he preached that people should turn to God. That's an important part of repentance. It's an important part of of turning from sin and hatred. And that is brought out too by our forms and the creeds. You'll notice in a bit when we read the form for examination. And when you consider what the creeds say about the Lord's Supper, even that I've already quoted, you will always notice that it's not simply that we consider our sins and the curse due to Him, uh, due to us for them, so that we may loathe and humble ourselves, but it's always and also believe the promise that those sins are forgiven only for the sake of Jesus Christ. You see, it's not right even to charge that we teach regarding repentance that it's only a turning from sin or it's a mourning over sin. It always includes a turning to God for the forgiveness of those sins. And without that, you don't really have true repentance. And that's why, too, and this is something we shouldn't be afraid of. We often are. Sometimes we have to rebuke an individual living in terrible sin. Sometimes we have to rebuke ourselves. But we're afraid to do that. We don't do it as we ought because we're afraid, well, we're going to drive them into hopeless despair and a grief from which they cannot recover, perhaps even suicide. So we we hold back. You shouldn't be afraid of that. Because true repentance, true repentance that is of faith, always turns to God in hope. It's never a hopeless despair that leads one to destroy itself. That's why Judas's so-called repentance wasn't true repentance. He showed that because he turned to killing himself. He didn't turn to God. He didn't turn to faith in Jesus Christ like Peter did. God worked repentance in Peter. He was sorry for her sins. He grieved over them. He confessed them to God in Jesus Christ that he turned to him and believed that God forgave those sins for Jesus' sake. And that's why even tonight I preach to you that if under the preaching of the gospel 
And if in your self-examination of yourself you come to such loathing and hatred of your sin that you also loathe and humble yourself, realize that's what we should be driven to, to loathe and humble ourself. That's what the gospel should drive you to. That when it does that, so that you stand there looking over the abyss of hell, you smell its smell, you see its torment, you may never do so without hope. Why? Because I declare to you that Jesus Christ has already paid for and atoned and satisfied for the sins of every single one who confesses them in true repentance to Him. That's a reality. That's a fact. And that's the gospel. Not one single person, not one single individual who has ever turned to Jesus Christ, to God in Jesus Christ, with their sins in hand, confessing them, mourning for them, is ever turned away. Those sins are forgiven. Those sins are washed away. And indeed, that's already a fact. So that sorrow is never a sorrow of despair and hopelessness. So if you look at repentance, you'll see some things also that the Reformed Creeds teaches. Number one, it's mainly an activity of the heart. Where does the sorrow occur? Where does it have its source? Oh, there may be tears, but that sorrow is essentially a matter of the heart. When one confesses to God, you'll discover that yes, sometimes the lips are involved with confession, but it's always essentially a matter of the heart. Confession simply with the lips without the heart is not repentance. And when one turns to God, is it a turning of the body and life as such? No. Repentance is a turning in the heart, a turning in the mind, a turning in the understanding. Rend your hearts, we read in the prophecy of Joel. In fact, that's what the word literally means, a change of heart. It's also something ongoing and continual in our life. That was the point that Martin Luther was making in his very first thesis. If we have a view that repentance is simply a matter of self-examination four times a year before the Lord's table, we don't know what it is. We don't know our sin. We don't know the horror of our sin. We don't understand what those sins actually deserve. Ongoing. And I would add this too. There's no true repentance that does not recognize God's grace in the heart. That it is God who grants and gives repentance. And that's not only from the texts that I read that describe it as the gift of God, but from the text itself where the Apostle describes it as an opening of the eyes and a turning of them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. He's describing their repentance. The repentant one recognizes that. Always. A so-called repentance that may have tears, even confesses outwardly, I'm a sinner or I have this sin, and turns to God with the idea and the notion that God will receive me because of my repentance, 
on the basis of my repentance, in other words, hasn't repented. What's the necessity of repentance? Can one be saved without repentance? Can one be forgiven without repentance? And the answer is no. It's necessary for Christians. That should be obvious simply from what we pointed out already in the text. This was the great, great calling that was given to the Apostle Paul for which he was converted. It's clearly implied by the context where the Apostle says he was sent to open the eyes of the blind and turn them. But especially what I want to highlight is how necessary it is for forgiveness. Notice the Apostle says that I was sent to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins. Notice that. By forgiveness, we mean more than the work of God by which He removes the punishment due unto us for our sins. We include in that the inner work of God that frees us from the guilt and shame of our sin that gives to us the peace and confidence that accompanies that, refer to the peace of soul, the tranquility of the mind, the confidence. All of that is included in the forgiveness of sins, the knowledge and the reception of all of that. The Apostle even brings that up too in verse 18. The consciousness that we've received the inheritance. All of that may be included in forgiveness. And forgiveness always follows repentance. Said repentance is necessary for forgiveness, but we may say also that forgiveness always follows repentance. If there is no true repentance, then there is no true forgiveness. And there can be no true forgiveness without true repentance. And no, that doesn't make repentance a condition to forgiveness or a satisfaction that merits forgiveness. We're charged with that. But it's clear that charge is against the Reformation itself. It's clear from the very quotes I gave. I'll add to those quotes. In the Canons, Head 5, Article 5, that relationship is made so crystal clear that it's irrefutable and to deny it is to deny the gospel teaching. Canons Head 5, Article 5 talks about our sins, how they interrupt the exercise of faith, they, gro they grievously wound the conscience so that sometimes we even lose the sense of God's favor for a time until on the returning into the right way of serious repentance the light of God's fatherly countenance again shines upon them. You may call that forgiveness. And if you doubt me on that, then if you just go ahead to the Article 7, it speaks about this, that God by His Word and Spirit certainly and effectually renews them to repentance, to a sincere and godly sorrow for their sins, that they may seek and obtain remission, that's forgiveness, in the blood of the mediator. Notice the order there. There also is the answer to the slander 
that that's conditional theology, that that repentance is your good work. It is not your good work. It is not works righteousness. Notice who works it. God, by His Word and Spirit, certainly and effectually renews them to repentance. That slanderous charge is directed not only against the Reformation, but God. God and His work in Jesus Christ to effectually renew to repentance. You see, that's the necessity. The necessity isn't that this is some condition that God requires me to fulfill, some box to check, but the necessity is God Himself. This is the way our God has ordained it to be. This is the order that God has ordained. And the necessity is that God has made it necessary. God has made it a part of salvation. God has made it part of the order of salvation. If you object to that, your problem is not with me, but it's with God. But think about really why that is. Why would that be? Before we do that, let me just demonstrate that this is a work of God of salvation. It is an aspect of our salvation. If you look at the Canons Head 1, Article 3, we read that we are called to repentance by the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. So when one repents, it's because he heard the effectual call of the Holy Spirit to repentance. So one may not leave that out of the call of the gospel. The call of the gospel is not simply believe, but repent and believe. In the Canons Head 3, 4, Article 10, we read, God confers faith and repentance. That confirms what is written in the Canons Head 5, Article 7. But think. Think about why it's necessary. Why did God ordain it that way? And the answer is because without repentance, one is blind. That's what the Apostle says. Repentance is the opening of the eyes, the turning of someone to darkness, to light, from the power of Satan unto God. You see, without repentance, one does not see their sin. One does not know their sin. And one cannot know one's forgiveness unless he knows from what he's forgiven. It is impossible to know you're forgiven your sins unless you know your sins. That should be obvious, but to put it in terms of the apostle, it would be like saying that a blind man could see the light. Oh, the light may be there. The light may be shining. There may be a beautiful rainbow up in the cloud, but the blind man cannot see it. He cannot enjoy it. He cannot understand it and know it for what it is. His eyes must first be open. Thus, repentance. The knowledge of sin. The sorrow of sin. The confession of sin. And the turning to God for forgiveness of that sin. God has made first. And therefore, so important is it. If you want to know how important and necessary it is, take note again what the canons say, that God effectually works it. Why would God do that if it wasn't necessary? 
The necessity is God Himself. I don't have time this evening to prove to you that forgiveness itself is the grace of God, regardless that repentance precedes it. I want to move on to talk about the evidence always of repentance, because that's a point the Apostle makes too. When he says that he preached that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. Now right there, the Apostle shows that not only is it slander to charge that we teach what we do, but it's wrong and an error to teach that repentance is a good work. That statement of the Apostle wouldn't make any sense if repentance is a good work. Then it would read this way, uh, that I preached repentance and that they should do... No, i got to change that. I preached that they should do good works and turn to God and then do good works, meet for good works. That's nonsense. Repentance is not a good work. But rather good works follow repentance and forgiveness. Notice that. Repentance and forgiveness. And they are the evidence of repentance. That's the answer to Rome that the Reformed view of repentance and the Reformed view of forgiveness leads to carelessness, ungodliness, wickedness. No, it doesn't. Because God, in working repentance, always works not only forgiveness, but He works meat for repentance. That is in harmony with repentance. It always follows. And notice too there, he doesn't simply speak of works meet, but of practicing works, doing works, that they should do them. What does he mean? Well, those that are in harmony, those that show, those that demonstrate that one really is sorry in his heart for his sin, that one has actually confessed their sins to God, one has actually turned. The point is that when those things are done, the evidence, the fruit of that, always is works in harmony with that, that flow out of that. In fact, the profound idea of the text is that's actually what they produce. There is no good works meet for repentance apart from repentance. Notice that. You can't have any good work that's appropriate or in harmony with, without repentance. It's, it's impossible. It's the fruit of it. It comes out of it. It flows out of it. The ones that Rome required weren't. They were works of satisfaction. They were works to be done before there was absolution. They were offensive to God. They were wicked to God. You see, if one is repentant, and one is forgiven, then he need not do works to receive repentance. Does not do works to receive forgiveness. There's no need for that. There's no desire to do that. Good works are those fitting or meet for repentance because they're done in love. True repentance, as I said, is the recognition of God's grace and God's work. And forgiveness too. And only those are truly works meet for repentance. That, beloved, is a summary of true, reformed, biblical repentance. Amen. Let's now turn to the form. And we'll read the three parts of 
self-examination, and you can compare that to what I have preached from the Word of God, page 91. It's really an examination about repentance. The true examination of ourself consists of these three parts. First, that everyone consider by himself his sins and the curse due to him for them, to the end that he may abhor and humble himself before God, considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that rather than it should go unpunished, he hath punished the same in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Secondly, that every one examine his own heart whether he doth believe this faithful promise of God that all his sins are forgiven him only for the sake of the passion and death of Jesus Christ, and that the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given him as his own, yea, so perfectly as if he had satisfied in his own person for all his sins and fulfilled all righteousness. And thirdly, that every one examine his own conscience whether he purposeth henceforth to show true thankfulness to God in his whole life and to walk uprightly before him is also whether he hath laid aside unfeignedly all enmity, hatred, and envy, and doth firmly resolve henceforth to walk in true love and peace with his neighbor. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we thank thee for thy word, thy word of truth, and we pray, O Lord, for repentance. We pray that in our examination we may find a true loathing and humbling of ourselves, recognizing what our sins deserve, and that there is no activity, there is no work, there is not even our repentance itself that can satisfy for the great offense that our sins have caused, and that only the blood of Christ is sufficient, only the blood of Christ is able to wash away our sins. And we pray, O Lord, that we may know that, come confidently to the Lord's table, believing that Thou hast forgiven our sins in Jesus Christ and for His sake, and may find a godly resolve to live a life of thankfulness with Thee and our neighbor. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.